We're in a study on the Bible, how to interpret scriptures, how to understand the Word of God, how to read this book and get the most out of it. So how many of you know that I love you? How many know that I care for you, I love you? Amen? You know that? All right, good. Because I need to spank us all tonight. I, I really have to. I really have to spank us because we're not reading our word enough. We don't know enough of the word of God and everything else is getting in the way of this communication to the Lord. We know how to communicate. We got cell phones, iPads, uh, intercoms, TVs. Uh, we got enough communication except between the Lord and us. And uh, I'm under a conviction for this. I'm going to put it on you as well so that we're all in the same boat. Amen? We've got the word of life. We've got this word from God that men and women have spilt their blood to preserve and to keep and to hand down a more sure word of prophecy to us. And uh, we've got how many Bibles in our homes and five and six translations. And I've been in lands where they've had to memorize a few pages because that's all they've had. They don't have Bibles, but yet the Word is precious to them. They weep over it. They hunger for it. They'll travel miles to hear it. And so we've got to get back to loving this Word of God, loving and devouring and eating this Word of God. Amen? If we go astray, it's because we are not staying in the Word of God. And uh, so it's easy to get sidetracked, but I want to encourage you, Let's get back into the Word of God. So I'm teaching tonight on how to get the meaning and the most out of this Word of God. And uh, so we want to begin with finding meaning in the Word of the Lord. And so God's Word is our foundation. The word for the Bible is called the canon. That word canon isn't like a big black iron thing that shoots on pirate ships. A canon is a measure or a rule by which we measure life. And in Hebrews 5 it says, Through constant use of the Word of God, they were able to discern good from evil. Now thank the Lord for the Holy Spirit who gives us the gift of discernment, but He's also giving, given us a measuring stick to discern good from evil. The more you know the Word of God, the more you digest the Word of God, you can avoid evil for good. The psalmist said that I've hidden thy word in my heart so that I may not, what? Sin against God. And so here is your measuring stick, and, and how many of you ever, I don't know how many carpenters we have here, but sometimes you get a cheap household 12-footer, right, and, and a 12-foot tape, and that does you no good at all when you're trying to get some things done, especially when you're doing major construction work, right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? You take a little 12-foot, and, and it just, nah, that's no good. So then you go out and buy a 25-footer, you know? But then you know true construction guys, because theirs is like this big, and that thing just, right? We should be a people, especially in these United States, who have such freedom to study the Word of God. We've got teaching 24 hours a day. We should have a measuring stick in our heart. The Word of God, this canon of Scripture should be in us 
so that we can rightly discern good from evil. How could Christians who have the very presence of God's Spirit, the one who inspired and embreathed this Word, living in us as well as having this Word in our hearts and minds and in our possession, how can we be so lame and weak in our Christian walk? There's no excuse, brothers and sisters. And so I'm here not to not to condemn or to yell, but to motivate us to fall in love with this Word of God again. To fall in love with it. And we're not discerning evil. We're not discerning good. We're going our own way. And that's trouble. How many of you know that? Let's start, first of all, with our view of Scripture. We have a very high view of Scripture. We believe that all Scripture is God-breathed. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable. Say with me, profitable. profitable. It is what? Profitable. The Word of God is what? Profitable. profitable. How many of you want to make a profit tonight? Yes. You want to leave here more profitable than you came. This is better than gold, is better than silver, is better than anything else. This is the wisdom that's going to give you a better life. The Word of God, it is God-breathed, it's inspired, breathed out by the Lord. Now, when I speak, right now I'm speaking, and the, the, the way I'm speaking is that air is coming through my vocal cords, causing sound to be made, so that the symbolic noises that I'm making, you understand the meaning of them, because as words they have a meaning to us, and you have understanding. All Scripture was breathed through God. It was spoken by God. That Word, Jesus Christ, became flesh. The Spirit is the one who is the vehicle by which the, the Word of God is spoken. Peter said it superintended, it carried along the prophets. It spoke into their lives, and they uniquely spoke this Word. This is God's Word. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, that's rebuking and, and uh, telling folks where they're off, for correction and for training in righteousness. This is everything we need. That the man of God may be what? Complete, equipped for every good work. If you're looking for what you need to finish the job, this is it, the Word of God. Go here first before you go anywhere else. Go to the Word of the Lord, all right? Now, we have a problem in our land today and in probably most of our seminaries that study and teach pastors. Most of the pastors nowadays don't believe in the inspired Word of God anymore. What's typical in most churches today is they believe that this Bible contains the Word of God. We differ from that and say this is the Word of God. It doesn't contain it. Where you figure it's inspired in other areas it's not because they'll think that there's some discrepancies or ancient ideas or misinformation or mistranslated uh, and, and they can't stand behind it. We don't believe this contains the Word of God. We believe this is the Word of God. Are you with me tonight? This is the, the Word of God. If this, does, if this is not the Word of God and we don't have a valid translation from the original manuscripts, if this does not contain all that is from the Lord, then what is of the Lord in this? And then our foundation begins to crumble, right? So we believe this is the Word of God. Why? As Jesus said, I truly, I say to you, heaven and earth will pass away, but not one iota, uh, not one dot, or uh, King James would say jot or tittle, 
these are little pen strokes in Hebrew to help pronunciation and help dictation. He said not one of them in the law will pass away until all is accomplished. The psalmist said that thy word is settled in heaven. This word was established eternally. It's not going to change. Not one jot, one, not one dash, not one comma. Nothing will change until all is completed in this word. And that's when Christ returns. Hebrew 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active. Right? It is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces the division of the soul and of the spirit, of the joints and of the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That is amazing, isn't it? That is awesome. The Lord showed me something in this verse in Hebrews 4.12. If you look at Hebrews 4, what you're talking about in Hebrews chapter 4 is the Sabbath. You're talking about the rest for the people of God, and, and you see him discussing this whole thing. And then out of the blue... After he's talking about the Sabbath, he's talking about high priest, he's talking about the tabernacle, he, he just goes off into this thing and says, hey, the Word of God is, is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's quick and alive. And it's like, where did that come from? How does that fit in there? And, and the Lord showed me a, a word picture. Uh, uh, if this is what the author intended, I don't know. I, I kind of believe it is. But uh, it, it showed me that the, the sacrifice of of the high priest what the high priest does when he prepares the sacrifice for the altar he butchers the animal and so sharper than any two-edged sword sharper than any butcher knife the word of god will cut between the joint and the marrow because when that when the high priest puts on that animal sacrifice he will cut off the hind parts from the fat and cut the, the, the offal, the, the carcass off away from what is supposed to be offered. The high priests and the priests and Levites who worked in the tabernacle were butchers. And I mean that in a nice way. All right? That's what they did daily. They were butchering meat to put as a sacrifice at, onto the altar of God. And so what he does in turning this is that he cuts this uh, sacrifice and puts it on the altar to, to uh, cut us presentable to God, cutting between the soul and the spirit, dividing in us flesh from spirit so that we would be presented to God holy and clean. Amen? You getting this? This is what the Word of God does. It cuts. How many of you have ever been butchered by the Word of God? Right? I've been flailed. And it's supposed to be happening. It's supposed to be cutting us. James says it's like looking into a mirror so that you can see what's going on. He says, don't walk away from that. What God has shown you, do something about it. And so this word of God is sharp. It'll cut asunder between the soul and the spirit, just like a knife cuts between the joints and the marrow of a bone to separate it. And it's the discerning of thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So when you hear the Word of God, when you read the Word of God, when you study the Word of God, you're getting dissected. And we want that because we want truth. How many of you know that you're deceived by, about yourself, right? How many of you? We look in mirrors, we deceive ourselves. We either think we're too skinny or we think we're too fat. We're never satisfied. We can't figure it out. We think we look young when we're old. We think we're old when we look young. We, don't, we deceive ourselves. How many of you know this? 
But this is the true Word of God that will never deceive. All right, so first of all, we have a high view of Scripture. This is everything. This is our rule, our measure, our instruction, the knife of the high priest Jesus to cut us and, and present us as a sacrifice to God. It's essential. It's a surgeon, right? Uh, let me bring it to you in another way. Uh, uh, plastic surgery is quite popular today. Well, Jesus will not only do cosmetic surgery, he'll do the deep stuff too and rearrange what needs to be corrected. Amen? All right, so how do we get the most out of this Word of God? How do we find meaning in it? Sometimes it can get pretty confusing. Sometimes it can get ah, difficult to understand. Well, we want to understand the, the process by which we learn to interpret the Word of God. That is called hermeneutics. All right? Some of you guys, that's a fancy word. I'm not going to keep that word. Well, there's all sorts of words that you learn in life. Hermeneutics means how to properly translate this word. And so we're going to study. I want to, first of all, help you understand that there are rules for hermeneutics. All right? And part of those rules for hermeneutics uh, I want to teach you tonight is how we interpret the Scripture, the art and science of interpretation. So we're going to start with what process we use. We use the process that's called literal translation. Uh, I'm in a bit of a, a discussion right now. I haven't answered the man in, in almost about six months. But there's a man who wrote me some letters uh, uh, who's a believer, but he said, oh, you're one of those literalists. You take the Word of God literally. And we say, yes, of course we do. And uh, a lot of people make fun of literalists, saying, come on, that's ridiculous. You can't take this stuff seriously in a modern day of science and education. Let's, let's break this down for a minute to understand what literal means, a literalist, okay? Listen, God used or employed human language to communicate to us. He condescended his intelligence and majesty and used our little word and verbiage to communicate to us. God's verbiage is beyond human language. It is beyond just word symbology. It is found, his language is in the stars, it's in the sky, it's in the atmosphere, it's in all that he created. Everything speaks of him. He is beyond just uh, verbal language, but into dreams and visions and pictures. and I mean, God is vast. But He chooses, and He chose to use human language to communicate His truths into men's hearts. And He did that using the method of grammar and proper use of language to do this. So when God had them write, He had them write literally what they saw and what they heard. So what literal interpretation means is to take the words for what they mean, plain and simple. All right? We've got to be careful with that. In the Dark Ages, in the Middle Ages, their type of interpretation was, uh, was uh, an analogy for everything. Everything had a deeper symbolic meaning, and it was, it was sloppy. It was any verse could mean anything to anybody because it's all symbolic and so forth. That's why we almost lost salvation in the church because of the Middle Ages got so off in their interpretation of Scripture. 
but it is literal in that words mean what they say. This was written for common people to understand the Word of God. He was communicating, and God wants to communicate simply so that we would receive it and understand it. But also that it, what is carried with the Word is an anointing of the Holy Spirit for depth of meaning. Because God says, your thoughts are not my thoughts. My ways are much higher than your ways. So not only does he use common words, literal meanings, but there is a depth spiritually attached to them that awakens us. Now, let me put it to you this way. The stories we read in the Bible are real. We take them literally unless they are spoken of as parables or figurative stories. So people say, oh, you're a literalist? You really believe there was an Adam and Eve? Absolutely. Yeah. Now, uh, I don't know the mysteries of all that took place in that garden and, and what it all actually looked like. We have a little bit of information. But we know that there was an, a, a man and a woman that God created. And it tells how he created them. He tells what the conflict and what the problem was in that story. Story is beautiful. You need to learn to fall in love with story. Story can give you a message on multiple levels of insight and interest and emotion. It captures you. People love stories. How many people go to movies? Huh? People love movies. People love books. People love stories. People love dramas. People love story because it touches emotion, intellect, and it has layers of meaning. And so, you know, we get people who are pseudo-intellectuals who say, this is foolish to believe Adam and Eve. We believe in this, we believe in that, you know. Well, I have to have a, a question asked to Christians. If you don't believe in a literal Adam and Eve, what are you going to do with Jesus' belief in a literal Adam and Eve? Now, Jesus in, is talking about marriage in Matthew 19. He does not name Adam and Eve, and he says, do you not know that God created them male and female? He created them. And, and who's he talking about? Well, Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians 15 that the first man, Adam, is of the earth. I mean, biblically, Jewish mindset, they all believed in a literal Adam and Eve. But if we've become so intelligent not to believe in a literal Adam and Eve, what do you do with Jesus, your Lord and your Master? You see, it begins to break down the authority of Scripture. How about Jonah and the great fish? Now look at that verse, never said it was a whale. How many of you know that? The story of Jonah never says it's a whale, it says it's a great fish. Now we say it's a whale. Whales are pretty big. We've got historical evidence that men have been swallowed by whale, whales and kept alive. Oh, come on, you don't literally believe that story. Absolutely I do. Jesus did as well because Jesus said... For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Well, he's just referencing that story about, uh, it's an analogy about something. He's just referencing, that could be, but he goes on and says, the men of Nineveh will stand up to this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and beheld something greater than Jonah. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So, he literally believed in a literal prophet named Jonah who was literally swallowed by a great fish and burped up on the seashore. You really believe that? Absolutely. That's why we literally interpret Scripture. You literally believe that there was Noah 
and there was a universal flood on the earth? Absolutely we do. So did Jesus. As he said, as the days of Noah, so shall it be when the Son of Man returns. And so Scripture interprets Scripture. Jesus is our authority. If you don't believe Jesus is the authority, I question whether he is your Savior. Right? He's our Savior. If he's your Savior, he's your Lord. If he's your Lord, what he believes, we should believe. Would you agree with that? Amen. And so it is. What about Lazarus and the rich man? How many of you know the story where Jesus says the, the Lazarus who was a beggar and there was a rich man and they both died and went to hell. Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom and the rich man went into Sheol, grave or the hell and there was a great gulf between them, right? Now Jesus never says that that was a parable. He doesn't say it was figurative. He tells that story. But he doesn't say it was a parable. Whenever he would introduce a parable, he would say this is as or this is like, but not that story. That story I literally take as reality. There is a hell and there is a paradise or Abraham's bosom now in the third heavens with the Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, we literally believe in literal interpretation, but let me help you understand the balance in that. Because some would say, well, if you literally believe it, then why don't you cut out your eye if it offends you? Anybody look at something today you shouldn't have? We're going to pass the basket around for you to put your eye in. That's literal. We have to understand what we mean by literal. Don't understand my clicker ever. <laughs> Grammar. We believe in a grammatical, historical interpretation of Scripture, what is literal. So the laws of grammar, all right? So when we believe in literal interpretation, there are styles of grammar. There is symbolism. There are parables. There is poetry. There is hyperbole. There is figurative language. There is analogous language. There is simile. It is like this, or it is as this. Uh, it's a parable or a metaphor. And so when we read the Psalms, we read it as literature. Right? When someone reads poetry, you take that literally? I take it literally as poetry. So poetry many times is figurative. Poetry many times has metaphor and simile. And, and, and parables our stories, all right? So when we look at it grammatically, we understand what it's doing with the literature. For example, Peter says this, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a, a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Oh, you literally believe that there is a devil? Yes, I do. Then you literally believe he is a lion with teeth looking to eat people. No, Peter said the devil is what? Like. There's our grammatical uh, explanation of a simile of what he's like. He is like a lion who wants to devour its prey. He hunts. We use this kind of language all the time. But it cracks me up with people who, who read the Bible and say, Oh, really? I showed you two videos last week. How many of you remember that? One was of our president. You remember that? People, come on, let's read our Bible. He was not properly discerning how to interpret Scripture, was he? Or, or, or how about 
uh, uh, pen and teller, I think it was pen, that, that was up there. He said, I read the Bible, read it through, right on through. It doesn't make any sense, talking snakes and this and that, right? He thought it was all foolishness. Well, again, you have to give a, a grammatical understanding of what's going on. How about Isaiah 55? The trees of the field clap their hands. I've never seen a tree clap. It doesn't have hands. This Bible is stupid. Well, no. It's an expression. It's a poetic expression of rejoicing to God that all of creation rejoices. And so when it's clapping its hand, it means the trees are rustling. Right? All right. Matthew 18, 9. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. Cast it out from you. Let's literally do that, right? That's, that, no. That's a hyperbole. A hyperbole is exaggerated speech to get the point across. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword between a parent and its child. Well, did literally Jesus want every child and parent to carry swords in their house? You're a Christian now. Here's your sword. Just, you know, chop at your kid whenever you want. Of course not. It's an analogy. The truth offends people, and it upsets family members, right? And it separates families. People get saved, and people don't want to live with saved people anymore. It really can mess up family. So these are hyperboles, exaggerated speeches, speech to get your point across, right? I was as sick as a dog. What is that? That's, that's trying to make your point you were very sick. Right? It's the same concept. Revelation 1.13, In the midst of the lampstands there is one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. That's figurative language. He's, Jesus, so when you think of Jesus, think of him in the middle of lampstands. Because that's what it says he's doing. But later on, he gives the symbolism of what that means. He goes on and explains them. The lampstands are the seven churches that he's writing these messages to. What's he saying? He's walking in in the midst of these seven churches. You just have to read further in context and understand the language use. Is it poetry? Is it hyperbole? Is it simile? Is it an analogy? Or does it literally mean that? And it explains it. So don't give up on it. And don't let anybody tell you that you're foolish for studying the Word of God. Secondly, in the grammatical aspect, is the languages. The Bible was written in Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament, and some Aramaic in the Old Testament as well. Uh, Book of Daniel. But so with these two basic languages of Hebrew and Greek, we need to understand their languages a little better, right? Let me give you a a, a real quick example. In Hebrew, when God is called El Elyon, right? What is that? Well, if we would learn Hebrew, El Shaddai, what is that? I don't know Hebrew. So let's do a study. You'll have a deeper understanding of of who God is by studying the Hebrew and the names. Uh, The tribe of Judah, the tribe of Issachar, the tribe of Benjamin. What do these names mean? In Hebrew, they have meaning. So let's go a little further. In the New Testament, in the Greek, Greek is a very expressive language. It's deep. It's wonderful. We have four words for the word love. How many do we have? One. And we use it for everything. 
But in the Greek, there's such diversity and depth of language. And so let's look into the Greek meaning of these words and get the depth of them. Amen? All right, so that's our goal. So grammar has to be involved in literal interpretation of Scripture. Let's go on and, and look at the next aspect of history. We've got to understand the historical aspect of this book. There were different cultures. Last week I told you over 1,500 years this book was written. Do you know how many different cultures develop in 1,500 years? How old is America? 200 plus, 200 something, right? That's not very long. But yet, how about our clothing styles? Have they changed? Right? I mean, we don't walk around like pilgrims do, and them funny hats, buckled shoes, right? Weren't there different styles of language? You know, words go through that much change as well. And so this language of culture and change, you've got to begin to understand some of that. So when you study this and read it, well, I thought you were going to take it literally. I do, literally, in a historical context of what it meant at that time to those people. We've got to do some work here. We need to understand culturally what's going on. Do you know that back then they used different measuring systems than we do? Different monetary systems than we do? Right? And it goes all the way through through culture. How women retreated in culture, how men acted in culture, how, how they were an agrarian, the agricultural society. So most of what Jesus spoke had a lot to do with uh, livestock and crops. Do you see what I'm saying? So there's a lot to, to understand historically and with the customs. And, and I want to show you how to do all that and use all that. Uh, let me give you an example. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about women wearing head coverings in the church. Because if they don't wear a head covering, it's as if they have a shaved head. It's like, well, where did you get that? If you don't wear a piece of cloth over your head, it's as good as having a shaved head. What, what is that all about? That's a custom in that city and in that time. Those, uh, the temple prost, uh, priestesses were prostitutes and they shaved their heads. And so those who were convicted of adultery, they'd shave their heads. And so what he's saying, if they don't cover their head, they're, they're not walking in submission and it's as good as being a prostitute. It's a cultural point that he's trying to make in that city and in that time for those people. And so we have to discern the culture and the custom and figure out, is this a rule or is this simply a principle? All right? And that's all part of interpreting, interpreting Scripture. Now, here's the biggest key to all of this. And that is context. Context. Let me help you with context. How many of you have ever heard Scripture out of context. That's where someone takes a verse and just pulls it out and uses it, right? Let me give you probably the number one most famous verse taken out of context. You know what it is? Don't judge me. Right? How often do you hear that? The world loves quoting scripture. You're not supposed to judge me, man. Don't judge me. Jesus said, don't judge me. That verse is not in context. And they're taking it out of context. The only thing Jesus is saying in Matthew 7 concerning judgment is that the judgment you use for others will be the same judgment used on you. 
all right? We are to judge and discern good from evil, right from wrong. If not, how could we obey the righteousness of the Lord? And so what we want is a loving judgment. We want judgment where you would judge me on my actions, but do it and show me in a way that I'd receive it and the way you would want it told back to you. So it's not don't judge me, but in context it is judge rightly. But it's taken out of context. So context is everything. So let's understand three principles for context. Number one, the immediate context. When you're reading a scripture or someone gives you a scripture, it is necessary for you to read the verses before it and the verses after it. Believe me, as a preacher, I've been taken out of context so many times. And you hear it all the time, too, with with different ministries. They'll play you a soundbite. I don't know if you've ever been interviewed on the news or, or if you've read in a newspaper. Don't believe half of what you read in newspapers or see on TV. Most of what's said is through a half-hour interview and they grab this and they grab that and they put it in a certain order and rearrange the context of a statement. And so context means putting it in its position rightfully in the flow of thought that the writer intended his audience to understand. So always go back to context before and after the verse. So that's the immediate context. The second is look at the book and the author. The context within that particular book. There's going to be a different context as John the Revelator in the book of Revelation versus something that would come out of uh, maybe the book of Matthew. Now, we would see something similar between the book of Daniel, the book of Ezekiel, and the book of Revelation because those books are apocalyptic books. They have the same flavor. So we could then begin to see from each of those books the particular flavor. James is a wisdom book. It would be close to the Proverbs and so forth. Let me give you an example of of context, uh, grammar and, and style. People quote this all the time. You know what? If you train up a child in the way he goes, he'll not depart from that. And that's a promise of God. All right. So if you train your child up in the church and in the ways of salvation, they'll stay and they'll be saved and they'll stay that way all their lives. Is that a promise of the Lord? What book does it come out of? It's a proverb. What is a proverb? It's a general statement. It's a proverbial statement. It's, a, it's not a promise of God. It is a, 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 a typical Thing. If you do this, this typically will take place. But it doesn't mean all the time. Because I know a lot of folks who grew up in the church and grew up under the admonition of the Lord and are not serving the Lord. But God promised me. It's not a promise. It's something that if you would do, and with your continued intervention and the continued prayer life and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, it is God's desire that yes, they would stay mindful of him. But you need to properly interpret these scriptures. So Proverbs are proverbial statements, not promises. 
There's a big difference in that, brothers and sisters. Am I saying don't bring your kids to Sunday school? No, I'm not saying that. Proverbially, if you do, that will typically happen. But it still takes your prayer and that person to respond to the Lord, right? All right, let's go on. So uh, we look at the book and the author. And last of all, we look at the whole Bible in context. The, the president, the, the quote I gave you last week from the president said, so which, which Bible are we going to interpret? Mockingly, he said, which Christians are we going to believe? Right? What are we, you want us to follow the Bible in public life? Are you kidding me? Should we follow the Bible where it says you shouldn't eat shellfish? Or that you should kill your child if he's rebellious? Huh? Come on, people. Read your Bible. What was he doing? He was mocking, and it was very poor interpre- interpretation of Scripture. His hermeneutics were very poor. Why? What is the context of those two Scriptures he quoted? The context is, what, what, bo- what bo- books of the Bible are they in? New Testament or Old Testament? All right. And what particular books of the Old Testament? Leviticus, right? The law. And the Mosaic law given to whom? The nation of Israel, for a theocracy, the theocracy of Israel. But in proper hermeneutics and proper scriptural interpretation, those things changed dynamically through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christians should know that. But many fall for those weak arguments. Look at polygamy was permitted in the Old Testament, but it's taught against in the New Testament. Theocracy was a command in the Old Testament because God was using one nation to bring light to the world. But it changed from that, and secular government is affirmed in Romans 13. And so God has a plan. God changed the way he was dealing with the one nation to all the nations. Uh, animal sacrifices, dietary laws, Sabbaths, holy days, festivals, priests, and liturgies, all those were fulfilled in Christ. And they were changed if you understand how to interpret Scripture and see what God was doing through history and culture and the work of Christ. This is where the church is failing miserably. We know more rock stars than we do prophets. You can name more sports and their statistics than verse and chapter in the Bible of quotes. Come on, all of us are off the mark here. We're spending more time watching how our money is in the stock market than what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to us daily. We're more faithful to read magazines and newspapers by a dead, blind world going to hell than reading the Word of Life from the one who conquered the grave. Something's wrong with us. And we need to get a hold of this precious, precious word of God. Now, let's conclude with this. Let's find meaning. We're going to find meaning tonight using these attitudes. Last of all, what you want to do when you're studying Scripture... We know that we need to take words literally for what they mean, but qualifying that by saying this. What kind of grammar is being used? Is it poetry? Is it simile? Is it exaggerated speech? 
What is the language originally saying in the Greek or the Hebrew? What is the context of that statement in the uh, speech of the person who is making it? And historically and in that culture, what was the meaning of it? And so when we read the Word of God, when each of you read the Word of God, you need to come to it with this understanding. First of all, you say, Holy Spirit, let me have eyes to see and ears to hear what you're saying. The author of the book is in you. So ask him to reveal to you what you should understand. Get good at this. Then the next thing you should do is, what is the original intent that the author was saying? What did he want to say to, this, to his audience? Matthew was writing to a certain group of people. What was he trying to say to them? Luke was writing to somebody. What was he trying to say when he wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts? Paul was writing to the church in Rome. What was Paul trying to say to that Roman church? In Corinthians, we see literally that book, that letter, is a letter in response to questions they asked him. And so he is answering their questions. That's the original meaning of these words. God is speaking to a nation Israel when he's writing through Moses the first five books. And so it's a, in context to whom? Israel and to the nation of Israel. And so let's remember, let's keep things in context when you read the book. When you read the book of Jonah, he's telling the story of Nineveh and his story and his life as a prophet. That's the message. You see, first of all, the first thing you do is find out what the original intent of the message was. Many people just do this. They go, oh, God, speak to me. Speak to me, Jesus. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Hear him. I agree. <laughs> you know how off we can get when we play Ouija board with the Bible? Come on, we're, we're using it like tricks understand the Word of God. Can God speak to you through Scripture? Oh, most definitely. But first, let's understand context so you don't get out of context with how you are operating. So the first is, what was the intent of the author? What did he want to say? Then secondly, how do I apply this? What's the application? When Paul is saying something, when, when Ruth, the book of Ruth, is telling me a story, what's the application for me? The application throughout this whole scripture is to the glory of Jesus Christ. First of all, you're not the center of scripture. Jesus is. So what's the application? And then last of all, what's the revelation? God can speak to me, and he speaks to you through this word. How many of you have had the Lord speak to you and, and you found your life strengthened by, by reading a passage? He may, you might be in the book of Leviticus. You say, oh God, I need to hear from you. And you begin reading Leviticus and say, I'm not going to get anything out of this. You read some passage and all of a sudden God has a depth to it that applies to you. But you understand it was written for the nation of Israel about the priesthood. So you understand the context of it. But God used that verse to reveal something to you. But you don't tell everybody else, this is now the new revelation of this verse. It doesn't mean what it meant to mean to the Levitical priesthood. It means what it means to me. No, 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 no. That's the difference between 
knowing what God is using to speak to you with, but it's not changing the meaning of the word. Are you getting this? All right, so let's try an exercise tonight very simply. All right, can we do this? We're going to try something right down the middle. Sue, if you would go to the left a little, and uh, uh, you guys go over to the left. We're going to have four groups here. We've got this group here, this group here, this group here. Scott, you get to, you can either, either way you want to go, brother. (laughs) Uh, You guys are here, okay? And here's our fourth group. Now, uh, we're going to, oh, we should probably, never mind. You know what? Skip that. Uh, I'm going to have you get into smaller groups. And we're going to try something here, all right? Um, We're going to find some interpretation of Scripture. We're going to just have some fun. All right. 